Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Nahmaduhu wa nusalli ala rasulihil kareem amma ba'd. We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala. We seek blessings on the Prophet, peace be upon him. So, continuing our study of Shahab Ahmad's What is Islam? We are on page 75. Yes. Uh, beginning with the Balkans to Bengal complex. Okay, go for it. The Balkans to Bengal complex constitutes what we might usefully conceive at conceive of as a post-formative stage and condition in the history of societies of Muslims. Mm. A stage at which earlier foundational elements are brought together in a capacious and productive historical synthesis that, in turn, provides a maniplex yet stable ingrediential base for further striking forth in a dynamic ver- variety of trajectories of being Muslim. Okay, how many lines was that sentence? How many syllables? Yeah, how many syllables? Okay, nice, nice, mashallah. Okay, so, so what is he saying in a nutshell? So he's describing this area of Muslims as going from the Balkans, which is Eastern Europe, all the way to Bengal, which is where his people are from, right? And and so that's the stretch of, so to speak, the heart of Muslim lands. Okay, and he's saying a lot of that that particular region is a part of the post-formative stage. So if we were to list out the stages of the formation of Islam, you have the life of the Prophet, peace be upon him. You have the four Khalifas, which, which Sunnis and Shias will look at differently. And then you have, you know, the various empires, but all the various Islamic sciences and stuff, they start getting developed in what we call the formative stage. And so this is the post-formative stage. So the formative stage, some people will say, goes up till about, about 900 of our calendar. And so this would be the post-formative stage. Okay. And what they're saying is that in those first 300 years, from 600 to 900, that's where much of Islam has really, really been formed. So you have what was at the time of the Prophet, peace be upon him, and the companions, but the, you don't have like the Islamic sciences as fully articulated sciences, right? The Hadith didn't start getting written until you know 200 years, 250 years after the Prophet, peace be upon him. Uh, didn't start getting written in, in like the modern way we think about it, like Bukhari and Muslim and such. And so that's essentially what he's saying. And so, a stage at which earlier foundational elements are brought together in a capacious and productive historical synthesis. So, what is also taking place here is that there is some consistency in that region in terms of the Islamic sciences, okay, from one end to the other. I mean, even today, in the vast majority of madrasas, whether they're, you know, in Urdu-speaking lands, Arabic-speaking lands, etc., uh, the vast majority of them use almost exactly the same curriculum, right? Um, uh, at least for the basics of becoming an alim. Uh, I'm saying that, that, that um, consistency started in the post-formative stage. So, so the fact that it's a cr- so the the sciences themselves get formed in the formative stage, mm-hmm. and then it spreads all across in this post-formative stage because there's still expansion taking place. Right, right. right. The Muslim world at the time of 900. Uh, actually, no. It's probably fair to say that's also pretty big. Because um, it spans all the way from from Morocco across North Africa into into the Indian subcontinent, um, but yeah, it seems that, that we'd be saying that you know now it's all being spread in some degree of consistency. Okay, let's continue. By the thirteenth century, seventh century of Islamic history, the major theological points of dispute which had riven the community of Muslims in its first centuries were for the most part settled with the theological schools primarily in terms of demographics, the Ashadis and Maturidis, 
Agreeing to disagree over an agreed set of secondary theological questions. Okay, so what we're also saying here is that think about whatever the big questions of life are. They're saying in the formative stage they've been answered. Okay, like the big questions. Uh, who is Allah? What do we need to know about Allah? Okay, so for example, uh, so I mean, we would, we would think, okay, well, it's just one God. But what else does that mean uh, in terms of du'a? And what is mandatory in terms of our prayer? Stuff like that. And so what formed in terms of the different sciences, one would uh, be just the sciences of learning Arabic, you know, turning it into a whole uh, grammatical system, um, and then studying the Quran, studying the teachings of the Prophet, peace be upon him, to figure out, all right, what is mandatory for me to know? So you will see terms like fard and sunnah in the teachings of the Prophet, peace be upon him, but here they're articulating, this, these things are fard, those things are haram so forth and so on, and then everything in between. Makru or, or Mustahab, all that stuff. So you look like you're about to ask a question. So do you think, would you say like the primary like purpose behind that kind of um, like, like explanation of all, all the principles that were formed in this formative stage, is that just to make it more like palatable or more easy, easily accessible to the lay people? I mean, I would, Islam? I would say it's to make it consistent. Right, so the schools of Islamic law, whether we talk about Hanafi, Maliki, Shafi, etc., the goal is to have consistency, right? Consistency in how you live, how you practice, and how you answer questions too, because the schools of law are basically schools of interpretation. So the Hanafi school uses these particular steps to answer questions. Maliki's use these other steps, but why? So we have some degree of consistency in in answering questions, and then also like the big theological questions. Beyond Allah will be something like, you know, um, <clears throat> what is the, the role of angels, right? Uh, and then other questions come up later on, like what is the relationship between Allah and the Quran? They're abstract theological questions that for most people it won't matter. But these are questions that come up. And so schools formed, and in some cases they'll say, okay, well, we take this belief, they take that belief. They still agree on maybe a, a short list of things everybody agrees upon, but then beyond that. And, and a similar, like the similar, uh, or like a similar question today would be something like evolution, right? At the end of the day, does evolution matter in terms of anybody's personal life? No, unless you're like doing work in evolution, right? But it's a question that affects a lot of people to the point that it affects your faith because it has other meaning. Like, okay, if you say, evolution didn't happen, then what does that mean you're saying about science, right? So that would be a similar theological question today. Yeah. Okay, let's continue. Who are the Ashari's and the Maturi? So, so Abu Hassan al-Ashari and then and Imam Maturi, these are people that develop systems of, of you you'd call them philosophy or theology, to figure out these questions about the unseen and how we answer them. So are they so, different than the schools of law, or do they so actually... Yeah, the, oh, okay. yeah, so the schools of law are once, they're approaching one aspect of life, which is basically action. Right. And then the schools of theology are basically addressing the question of the unseen. Oh, okay. Right, and how does everything in the unseen work? So they don't, they're not concerned with action, right. except in a philosophical sense, okay. like free will, predestination, things like right. that. Right. And so there's many schools of law, and there's four big ones that have survived, and then there's many schools of theology, and there's a few, probably it's probably fair to say that three are big ones that have survived. Okay. The Maturidis tend to be Hanafi in terms of law, Asharis tend to be Maliki or Shafi in terms of law. Okay. The uh, Hanbalis tend to not really get into, uh, or not in, uh, in terms of theology, 
Oh, no, no, okay. Asharis in theology tend to be Shafis or Malikis in terms of law. The Hanbalis in terms of law tend to not follow one of these schools. Oh, wow. They're just saying, yeah, we're not going to get into those questions. Okay. Right? Again, for regular people, most of that is not uh, important. But let's say you're a college student. Okay, then those questions are the types of questions that come up. Yeah. Okay, continue. Similarly, beginning from the 13th century, the mutual recognition by the scholars of the four Sunni legal schools of the orthodoxy of each other's legal method and corpus of legal positions, that is, the acceptance by members of one legal school of the validity of the legal position of another school, even when one position directly contradicts the other, exemplifies a larger attitudinal normalization of the principle of agreeing to disagree. Okay, so these are nice points. So... So like we said, you know, these are different schools that have different methods of answering questions. But also in this period of formation, they're deciding, all right, we disagree with you, we disagree with your method, but we can still see it as sound. Right. Right, so thus they agree to disagree. Okay. Right. Okay, I'm sorry, is yeah. there like a, a hadith with the Prophet Along the lines of differences between scholars is uh, a mercy or something like that? Like a difference, uh, uh, difference of opinion in my ummah are our rahmah from Allah. Yeah, our rahmah. And a way to read that is that a difference of opinion can be a fitna or it can be a rahmah. And it really comes down to other things like is your search for truth or is your search to win? Right? Is your search to find answers or is your search to just be proven right? Things like that. Yeah. Is that also to say that it's okay to have differences of opinion? Meaning it's inevitable. Okay. Yeah. I mean, what's fascinating is that, okay, there's a billion and a half of us. On most issues, you're probably going to find at most maybe like seven to ten opinions on any issue you can think of. And more more often than that, there'll probably be two or three opinions yeah. out of a billion people, which is fascinating. Because a lot of times, if you're not familiar with all that, you'll think, okay, we're so divided, we have all these different opinions. One... Uh, that allows for flexibility, right? Because if you're in a different context, you might need slightly different answers or significantly different answers. Then on top of that, the differences of opinion are not as many as people think. Yeah. In general interpretation, like if you look at tafsirs of the Quran, you'll find all kinds of different tafsirs, right? But when we're actually talking about things that relate to practice, it's a very, very short list of, of, of different opinions on almost any single issue you can think of, big or small. Compared to like uh, compared to other major religions like Christianity, how like our I feel like you you made a comment in a previous class where you said that or was it in a different conversation where you said that um, you feel like the Islam Islam in America especially is coming to like a period where it's going to go through a reform. Mm-hmm. Um, so compared to like Christianity, which has gone through a lot of like changes, um, do you feel like they're their differences of opinion are fundamentally more than us, or is it? Or are they like kind of the same? Okay, interesting question. So, so a few things like the Christianity didn't have the same type of formative period that we had. What's fascinating, specifically about Islam, is that it's been continuous since the Prophet peace be upon him. Christianity has Isa alayhi salam, and then it has these pockets after Isa alayhi salam is gone. Okay. But when does Christianity really start growing? When Constantine converts in the 300s. Mm-hmm. So three centuries go by. Constantine converts, then, then he makes Christianity the law of the land. And then that's when you start seeing all these things develop. Right? So like one of the very first major thinkers of Christianity is Augustine. And he's around the year 400. Right? And so 
Catholicism, you know, the formation of Catholicism uh, has its own phases. One is the St. Augustine phase. And then I think the next big one is the St. Thomas Aquinas phase, which is the 1100s. So think of 700 years of formation. The advantage that, that Catholicism has is because for much of its history, it's had a central body. Sometimes there's two competing popes, right? Um, um, and, but there's like a central body saying, okay, these are our opinions. And then people will be liberal and conservative within a particular range. Mm -hmm. But one of the strange blessings of, of our tradition is that even though we haven't had a central body, somehow this community of scholars was able to bring it all together, right? And then, and then you have uh, forming, uh, in the 1500s, you have the Reformation, and so now, or I'm sorry, in the 1100s, you have a split between the Eastern and Western Christianity. So one is what we today consider Catholicism like here, and the other is what we today call Eastern Orthodox. One is based in Rome, one is based in Constantinople. Okay? Then, in the 1500s, you have the Reformation, so Catholicism has another split, which is essentially what we consider Catholicism today, and then what becomes the Protestants. And so there are these major, major uh, different branches, uh, which are not the same as like Sunni and Shia. Sunni and Shia, if you compare it to Protestant and, and Catholic, Sunni and Shia are so close together, you would almost think like they're the same, the, the same school, if you compare it to Protestant and Catholic, right? Judaism had, a, had a, uh, uh, a different history because it's like Judaism looks at its history according to the construction and destruction of their temples, okay? So where Masjid Aqsa is, in Judaism, the land underneath Masjid Aqsa was the site of the, of the central place of Judaism, Jewish temples. And so there was one that was destroyed, and then there was another one that was destroyed. And so uh, the longing for, for many, I don't know how higher it is in their priorities, um, but uh, the idea is basically the reconstruction of the temple. Okay. And, and so, so the point is that uh, it took, uh, this also depends on which Jews you speak to, because I've had Reformed Jews who say that the Torah has been rewritten and rewritten. I mean, the idea being that the Torah has been lost and rewritten and rewritten and rewritten. But that there are some that are more on the Orthodox side that say, just like we do about the Quran, that the Torah is unaltered. Israeli Jews tend to say that the Torah is unaltered, right? Reformed Jews, which is the majority population in, in, in America, say that it's been rewritten and rewritten, Right? Nothing about what that means then in terms of construction of their, their schools. If the central text for many is not there. So they have kind of like all kinds of different branches. It looks from the outside in like, no, there's just one big consistency, no. But that's because there's one dominant type of Judaism we have in America, which is Ashkenazi Judaism, mm -hmm. which is basically coming from, from Europe, Eastern Europe, right? Uh, Sephardic Judaism, these are people who lived under, under Muslims in Spain. Their approach to a lot of things is very different. Right. Um, Hinduism, I don't think has had anything like that yet, any formative period. They probably had something early on during which Sanskrit got uh, codified as a language. And what other big religions are there? Those are the big ones. Yeah, Buddhism, uh, Buddhism, it also seems like there's big, very different schools of Buddhism. Today, when we think of Buddhism, we think of the Dalai Lama, but he's one of them. Mm. Yeah. So, Islam is unique in, its, in, in how, how, you know, consistently... Uniform it is without being like centralized. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think we underestimate how uniform it is, because yeah. we often see differences and such, um, especially compared to other traditions. I mean, I could be wrong, but that's that's my understanding across across the different religious groups. Um, and you know, like the the point I often make in Quran classes is that all right, you can trace the entirety of the Islamic traditions 
to the Quran and the Prophet, peace upon him, which you can trace back to Al-Fatiha, which you can trace back to Bismillah Rahim, which you can trace back to the B. Right? I mean, nobody has anything like that. Where you can say Al-Fatiha is the heart of the whole tradition, and it's the first surah. Right. So yeah, it's one of those, those, those gigantic gifts that uh, most people don't realize. Good. Okay, let's continue. Also, by this time, the idea of legitimate rule exercised by an office in which are invested uh, the combined, in which are invested the combined concepts of sultan, sovereign, madik, king, exerciser of dominion, khalifa, caliph, vicegerent of God, and padshah, emperor, for the ordering and administration of society in accordance with divine justice, essentially what is summed up on the wine cup of Jahangir, where these, where these concepts appear inscribed in close array, is universalized in this region as a norm of the political imagination. So what else is, is fascinating is that okay, uh, we would take for granted that they even had to come up with terminology. Right? So... Terminology like Fard, Sunnah, Nafal, Mustahab, terminology like authentic Hadith, Hassan, Sahih, all those things, they even have to develop that and agree upon that, right? And so, like, for example, the term Khalifa or Amir al-Mu'minin, Abu Bakr was not given the title of Amir al-Mu'minin. That was developed under Omar. And now we kind of think of it as a standard for, like, the single ruler of Muslims, but that was not from the Prophet, that was not from Abu Bakr. It came, you know, just literally a couple of years later. And so all these other titles, Sultan, Malik, Padshah, um, these are all uh, titles that, that were developed later on. Uh, and we would say the source of all that, we can find this terminology in the Quran, in, in the teachings of the Prophet, peace be upon him. But people had to decide, all right, this is this term, this is that term. You know. Okay, uh, continue. Further, in this period, a set of institutions marked the social, physical, and imaginal landscape of the Balkans Bengal societies of Muslims in an interrelational matrix that structures and configures discourse differently to what has gone before. Okay, so, so uh, this language again is kind of complicated and it kind of makes it sound uh, much more clean than it is. When we think of the tradition, think of the tradition as a whole series of conversations. That's basically the tradition. And it becomes a tradition when people start agreeing upon the limits. Like, these are the boundaries. So, like, in Islamic tradition, you're not going to say there's no God. You can explore what would that mean, but you're not going to say there's no God. You're not going to say that there's a prophet after the prophet, peace be upon him. Right? Then you automatically get regarded as a splinter. And, and so, this is literally centuries-long conversations. So even, you know, the example I commonly give is Bukhari. We think of his book in Sunni Islam as the standard of hadith. Um, but shortly after he compiles his hadith, others came along and said, okay, well, you left, using your method, you've left out all these other hadith that should have been sahih. And other people came along and said, okay, well, um, you have these few hadith that don't fit your actual, your, your method. They should not be considered sahih. And, and so, so the point being that the people who are responding, they might come 100 years later, long after Bukhari's died, right? And then other people come along responding to them, and other people come along uh, responding to them. And that's how the tradition forms. It's literally conversations, as opposed to, or like people responding to other people who might be their contemporaries, or they might have been from centuries before. And so then on top of that, uh, like when we think of the formation of the tradition, we think it's like a body of people who got together and figured out all the answers. No, that's not how it worked. 
it's this person responds to that person, someone responds to this person, and then you start finding consistencies. Are the conversations still going on today? Yeah. It's just that the questions keep changing. Okay. Uh, but, like, are they significant enough that they still add to, like, Bukhari and stuff, or not as much? I mean, so they would address different aspects of life, and a lot of times this is just related to whatever the needs are of the time. Okay. Right? So we had hadith from the time of the Prophet and beyond. But then, about 200 years after the Prophet, peace upon him, there is an extra special need to start writing it down because the nature of learning started shifting from verbal living tradition to written tradition. And so thus there became an extra need to really write all this stuff down. Right. right? And so these Islamic legal schools formed based on need. The Hadith schools formed based on need and such. And so try to even think about what the big questions of today are. Like... What is the relationship between belief and modern thought, right? Or deen and modern thought. Or how, does, how do Muslims organize themselves in an era of democracy, right? Those will be some of the big questions today. So you'll see more focus on, for example, political thought. You'll still see people studying all these other fields and coming up with contemporary answers. Um, uh, one second, I've got to respond to this. But the point is that the main difference is that I think there's fewer people now, right, right. who are engaged in these conversations. Isn't that like part of the prophet's foretelling when he says like scholars will be, towards our times, all the scholars will be gone, like all the scholars? Yeah, that knowledge will be taken away, not by people forgetting things, um, but by the fact that scholars will die off. Yeah, and the Quran will also be lost. Yeah. So all the Hafiz kids will either fail. You know, sometimes I wonder if that's already happening. Oh, subhanAllah. No, okay. And then, um, or maybe different uh, uh, ahruf are, are being lost. Do you think they're all really lost, though? Or are they going to happen? Well, I mean, in, in Shia thought, the, the imam that's saving everything is going to go, is in hiding and will reemerge. In Sunni thought, we're saying, yeah, this stuff is all going to get lost permanently. Another way that it can get lost is that it's just in books, oh. right? That nobody reads anymore. Mm. Uh, um, the, uh, so the point being that, like, if you go to these libraries in Syria, in Morocco, there's, there's manuscripts upon manuscripts that are a thousand years old that are just withering away, collecting dust, yeah. right? Um, uh, so, I mean, it's fair to say, okay, they don't have, like, central information that will give us the answers for our era, but there's a lot of resources um, um, in, in there, right, um, to, um, to, to benefit from. Like, in Turkey, among the Ottomans, like, there's been a bunch of libraries that have been opened up that were, like, kind of closed off when Turkey was much more secular. So there's going to be a lot of knowledge that's discovered, but that's one way knowledge is getting lost, because, A, no one's living it. Yeah. And the manuscripts are just being lost through time. Yeah. We have a lot of books and stuff in our archives here, which like nobody really sees. We went with the class last semester, um, like about Palestine, 40, 50, 60, 70 years ago. Um, mm -hmm. People who have visited and have seen it, and like they know that like that was Palestine, and they acknowledge that. Mm -hmm. <coughs> so yeah, sometimes this is strategy by imperial powers. You disconnect people from their knowledge and their history. Yeah. And so then they got nothing.
this is so it's a mix of all of those different things. Yeah. So. Okay, let's read a little bit more. Exemplary among these is the proliferation of the public institution of the madrasa, made possible by the prodigious application of the legal institution of the waqf endowment, which displaces the private household as the major locus of education and which, in the vast territory of Balkan Bengal, is characterized by a remarkably overlapping curriculum, not only of subjects and program of study, but also of books. Mm -hmm. So, so the point here is, is that, um, so the center of learning would have been the household, okay? And people started investing in endowments. So let's say I have a business and I promise that I'm going to give 3% of my, my profit to a fund to cover the school, Right? Or, I mean, so there are, there are endowments for all kinds of different things. There are endowments for even, like, dishes that uh, uh, this person is providing an endowment for a dish. So if a family had some dishes and they break, then you can go and exchange it, right? Whatever it is. Think about whatever it is you feel like you want to support. Endowments for, for, for fountains. Um, and so, so the point is that people would then um, uh, set up these endowments. Waqf is the term, awqaf, plural. And that would then provide you know, a place and funding for, for learning to take place. And this is, this starts out inside a masjid and over the centuries, this becomes a full-fledged university. So, so the University of Qaydaween, which is in Morocco, was formed by one of these endowments. So these, these two sisters, Maryam and Fatima, Fahriya, their father dies and leaves them with, I think, I don't know if it's a plot of land or what, that they decide to invest into an endowment to, to set up a madrasa. And even when they're building it, you know, they're like fasting every single day because um, um, they're doing it as a service to Allah Ta'ala. And so that is now the oldest continuously running university in the world. I mean, it's more than a thousand years old. Um, and Azhar started the same way. Azhar University started as a madrasa. First, originally it was an Ismaili madrasa, then it became a Sunni madrasa. And like if you go there, like there's the Masjid of Azhar with all these pillars. And you would literally sit... Um, um, in this particular corner, depending on whether you're learning Hanafi, Maliki, Shafi, law, and then there's pillars, like almost like levels, where you would move up from teacher to teacher until you're at like level one, right? And so, so the point being that this is this is how the system then became. The problem is that in the modern era, a lot of these uh, endowments have either been taken over by governments, and so they're gone, or they're just dried up. And so in the 60s, Al-Azhar University was taken over by the Egyptian government, which means now they're funding it, which then means what? It's no longer independent, mm. right? Even many of these uh, uh, American universities, they rely upon their endowments. Tuition only covers so much of operation of the university. Most of it is taken from, from endowments. And, and, and so, so the point is that, um, again, another reason why there's a lack of scholars is because there's a lack of funding for, for scholars. If you're going to become a scholar, you're probably not going to get paid much compared to becoming a physician or something. And so if people aren't putting money into it or consistent money into it, then who's going to go there? So, okay, continue. From the Balkans to Bengal, Madrasa students studied similar texts. Foundational works of logic such as the Isahuji? Sorry, I'm just catching up. Um... 
Uh, Sahiji. Yeah, I don't know what that is. Yeah. Um, whose other foundational text, the Hidayat al Hikmah, has been discussed earlier, and Al Risala al Shamsiya mm-hmm. of Najm al Din al Qawani. Qazwini. al Katibi. 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 Of dialectics, such as the Risala Samarkandiya yep. of Shams al-Din al-Samarkandi, and the commentaries thereon of argumentative, that is, dialectical, philosophical theology, such as the Mawaqif of Adud al-Din al-Iji, the Matali al-Anzar of Abu Athana al Isfahani. Yep. So where do you think that person's from? Isfahan. Which is Iran. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Um, and the Sharh al Maqasid of Saad al Din al Tafdazani. Yep. Of Quranic exegesis, yeah. such as the Kashaf yep. of the Mutazili rationalist. Majar Allah al-Zamakh Shari. Yep. And the toning down of the rationalism of the Kashaf and the Anwar al-Tanzil of Abdullah Umar al-Baydawi. Baydawi, yeah. Baydawi of Hadith, not only the Sahihs of al-Bukhari and Muslim, but also later Hadith sections such as the Mishkat al-Masabi. Yeah, that's right there, yeah. Oh. Of Waliyad-Din al-Tibrizi and of fiqh jurisprudence, such as in the cases of Hanafi, Ottoman, and Mughal madrasas, the Hidayah of Burhan al-Din al-Marghinani, yep. and the commentaries thereon. Okay, so all these are basically just examples. And so, for our purposes, what we're saying is that the same books start getting read all across. Uh, the Muslim world uh, for training of, of scholars. So this is just a, a sampling. Uh, almost all these names, people are named after where they're from, right? So, so depending upon whether we're identified with our ethnic heritage, you know, I'd be al-Pakistani or al-Amriki. And so all this uh, such and such e that is usually referring to where they're from. Samarkand is this place in Central Asia. Samarkand is a cool name because it's like the land of, of candy, yeah. the land of sweets. Yeah. Uh, let's stop right here. So what page is this? 78. Page 78, inshallah. Any other last questions or thoughts? No, good. All right. So, bihamdika, nashadu illa ilaha illa anta, nastaghfiruka natubi ilayk, wa akhira da'wana, anilhamdulillahi rabbil alameen.